And so we would carefully acknowledge your presence, Father. We do humble our hearts before you, grateful now to take our Bibles and to open them, thankful for the accurate historical accounts that we have. And, and Father, um, would you please, through your Holy Spirit, uh, just guide our study, open our minds, give us tender hearts that we would learn from the stories of people who've gone before us, that we would learn from their mistakes, that we would not follow suit. Thank you, Lord, for the instruction from your word. Thank you for how practical it is. And Father, we do need your strength as we seek to live in obedience and walk in uprightness before you. Father, we just uh, give ourselves to you now, thankful for this still time, thankful for this time that refreshes us and strengthens us and challenges us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are times, quite often, that I find myself in the role of the pastoral counselor. And people make appointments and come to me, and things are not going well. Do you know what that feels like? Life's just tough sometimes. Sometimes as I sit in my study and people pour out their story, there are difficulties and life has taken twists and turns. Often it is very difficult and very serious and sin has a way of compounding problems. Do you know that? Life has a way of taking you places you never thought you would be and and as I sit behind my desk and I listen and I, I sense their heaviness of heart and the difficulties of their lives, sometimes I, I really don't know what to do and I personally cannot fix their problems. It's too difficult. Every once in a while, when it's appropriate, as I listen to their story, I'll reach down in my left-hand drawer and I, I pull out a piece of paper, a blank piece of paper, and as they finish telling me what's going on and what's happening, I take the paper and I take my pen and, and I say, well, let me see if I understand correctly what you've been saying to me. Maybe I can draw a picture of your life and what's happening. And I take my pen and I take the paper and I go. <laughs> and here's where we are right now. And I look up, and often a tear will start coming then. And they nod their head and they say, yeah, Pastor Van, that's my life. That, that's a picture of my life right there. Do you know what that feels like? Life is scrambled. Things are difficult. You don't know what to do, and everything seems to be breaking down. Well, I invite you to turn this morning to Genesis chapter 19 as we return to our studies in this book of beginnings that have uh, just been so life-relevant. And yet again this morning, we're finishing up on the story of Lot. It's a pretty crazy passage of Scripture, really. Genesis chapter 19, it begins with verse 30 and and as I was looking it over, I thought, boy, I'm committed to preaching through the Word, and we have to deal with this, but it's somewhat of a distasteful topic. And it really became evident to me that 
we're now at the final stage of Lot's life, and, and we have in this passage the portrait of a messed up family. We have in this passage a man who's had every opportunity to succeed, a man who had the godly role model of Uncle Abraham guiding him, who turned away, who turned his heart to the things of this world, who was driven in a lust after materialism, who gave his whole life to things, and now he has nothing left. Let's read our text, and you'll see what I mean. And what I want us to do this morning is I looked at this passage in Deer Camp this week and thought about the different angles and what were the lessons in this passage. It occurred to me that I've seen this family before, maybe not in its exact unfolding sinfulness, but I have seen families that are, pun intended, caving in. I've seen families where everything's coming unglued. And I've had people through the years, countless times, across from my desk, and I see where sin has just destroyed them. And we have here, in this passage for us, what I've been seeing and witnessing, and if you're in social work or counseling, I think you'll be able to identify. It's even possible that, that you're from a messed up background. There may be things you're continuing to struggle with even now, but there are people that by God's grace are here this morning clothed and in their right mind, and you've been places that you just don't want anybody to know about. And I'll tell you, I think you're going to be able to identify with this family. I believe there are common threads of dysfunction that flow through all these families. Do you know that people haven't changed from the very beginning? Do you know that people are people are people? And that's why when we open the Word of God and we read these stories, they're actual historical accounts recorded for us, that it just hits you. These people are just like people we know. These are just like, you know, my, my cousin Ed. They're just like that. And you may be able to identify with some of these things. We're going to read the text and then we're going to break it down. And, and I've been able to identify in here, and I think you'll agree with me, six common threads of the dynamics of dysfunction. They're not just present in Lot's home. They're present in, in many homes where sin has come in like termites and eaten into the supporting timbers, and the house is caving in, and you don't know what to do about it. We're going to try to follow that up with six principles that were violated, six spiritual principles that were violated here that match each of the six dynamics of dysfunction. You'll be able to see them clearly and we won't have to develop them in detail. They're pretty easy to see. Why don't you stand with me and let's read God's Word. You haven't stood for a few minutes, stretch a minute. Let's read Genesis chapter 19. You follow along in your copy of God's Word, please. Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. You'll recall that right before this, you know, Lot has fled from Sodom and Gomorrah and that great destruction and judgment of God has taken place. And now Lot, verse 30, and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old. And there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. 
Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night, they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she, when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, younger let's, Last night, I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of this day, of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. And thus concludes a tragic family tale in our scripture reading. You may be seated, please. I have to believe that I have to believe that as Lot finds himself living in this cave, that he has to be processing, how in the world did I ever get here? It wasn't too long ago that I had a pretty nice home. It wasn't too long ago that I was sitting at the gates. I was one of the community leaders. How has this happened, this, this implosion or explosion? How has it, how has it come about that that all of a sudden my life is just filled with tragedy. His wife is gone. The, there's probably other siblings that were lost in the destruction of these cities. He had no idea how quickly life could unfold. No idea how quickly life could change. And here he is. As I mentioned, we see in this passage what I'm going to call characteristics of dysfunction. You might think of them as, as reoccurring themes whenever sin is caving in a life. Whenever sin is destroying a family, you will often find these six things. Let's take a look at the passage and see if you agree with me. Verse 30 again, Lot and his daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. The first thing that I think you'll see if you ever encounter a family or an individual whose life is just coming unglued. I've used the, the word life to start with. I actually used the word unglued here as well. Number one, life is unglued by major crisis. Life is unglued by major crisis. It's one of the themes that is common in homes that are flying from together. When lives are falling apart, you will find that there's always major crises going on. And they don't know how it happened. I have people who will stop by fairly regularly here. I always ask them if they've been out at the track and that's where their money went. Oh, no, 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 I'd never do that. And I think most of the time that's what's happened. No, they're on a trip. They're from Kentucky. And they, they live outside of Louisville, but they had to go see Uncle Zeb up outside of Brooklyn. And, and their transmission went out, and, and their uncle gave them money to come back. But then they ran out of money, and then somebody stole their purse. And then their engine blew after they got the transmission fixed. And now they have flat tires, and they don't have any gas money. And they don't know what to do. And can you please just give me, just help me out of this problem? And they've already told me ten major crises that have happened. 
Oh, and we got a call from Aunt Mabel that while we were away, our pipes froze and broke, and now our house is flooded, and we don't know what we're going to do. We're gonna, can't you please get, just help us right now? And in homes and in lives where sin has come in and made inroads and where, where lives are falling apart, you, you'll just hear that. You'll hear one crisis after another. You'll hear one major problem going down after another. We don't know why Lot left Zor. It just says that he left Zor. Do you remember that when the angels came to Lot and warned him to leave, that they, they told him, go to the mountains, flee to the mountains for, for rescue, for, for refuge. And so he said, remember he negotiated that little deal, I don't like it in the mountains, I want to go to Zor. Zor, we find out later, is on the checklist of the cities that were going to be destroyed in the valley. And so the angel does compromise because of Lot's presence. God does not destroy Zor. He goes there, and I don't know if he wakes up the next morning, goes downtown to buy a cup of coffee and a newspaper, and realizes that he's now living in a community that's just as bad as Sodom, and that God wiped out Sodom, and it's likely he's going to wipe out Zor. He had no desire to be there. It says he was afraid. It's possible that somehow the destruction of Sodom by the people of Zor has been identified with Lot, and maybe they're after him. It doesn't say. We don't know. But we know now that he has fled to the mountains where God told him to go to begin with, and there he is living in a cave. I think that if you could have heard Lot and his daughters before they left Zor, they would be telling everybody, you can't believe what happened to us down in Sodom. One crisis after another. Just the complete lack of blessing in their lives. And it used to be they had a lot of things and, and property and homes, but then somehow it's just all gone. And life's messed up. The first characteristic of a life that's caving in is that you will, you will find that life is unglued or characterized by sequential major crisis. And I think that's exactly what you have in Lot's life. Secondly, I want you to see what happens next in the passage. I think that you'll find in dealing with broken lives and sin caved in lives that life is guided by situation ethics. Life is guided by situation ethics. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look what it says in verse 31. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. I don't know what all is happening in the minds of these young ladies, and one thing we do have to note is that at this point in the revelation of Scripture and in the instruction from God to people on how to live, it has not been set down yet in command that incestual relationships are forbidden. That's coming, but it's not yet in Scripture. And we know way back one of the common questions that skeptics of the Bible love to ask is, all right, tell me where did Cain get his wife? Well, he married his sister. That's what happened. And we've talked about that and the purity of the gene pool and, that, and so forth and that it works. We know from this passage here, and it's going to happen again in chapter 20, Abraham is going to tell Sarah, well, tell him you're my sister. And in fact, they shared a common parent. They were half brother and sister. That was not uncommon for close relatives to marry one another at this time. But it does seem to be a little bit of an extreme reaction. How do they know there's not going to be anyone for them to marry? How long have they been in the cave? I don't know. 
It just seems like they haven't waited very long. It seems like the situation and the circumstances are guiding their judgment now. Oh, here we are, and this is what's happening, so we're going to do this. Well, is that the right decision? I don't know. We're just going to do it. And there is a, a circumstantial framework in which they make their decisions. I think it's even a clue in the fact that the way the girls think of their father. Now, I don't know how old Lot is at this time, but I don't think he's as old as his younger daughters think they, that he is. You know how that works? You know, I used to think that people who are 49 turning 50 and their next birthday are old people. Well, I got news for you. They're young people. I used to think that people who had their 30th year high school class reunion were old people. You know, back in high school, at Vicksburg High School, red and white fight fight. And you'd see in the papers, in the local Vicksburg paper, that the class of 1948 is going to have their class reunion. My senior year was 1978. That would be 58, 68, 78, their 30-year class reunion. Those people graduated from high school. They went to high school during World War II. Those are old people. My class, my 30-year class reunion has come and gone. That's not old. And that's what I think these Our dad is old. And he's... Listen, Uncle Abraham, do you know that in the future here that Sarah's going to die? He's going to remarry, have multiple wives and many more children and die at a good old age. And Lot's way younger than Uncle Abraham. You see, it's situation ethics. It's doing what's expedient at the moment. For some reason, they get in this panic. Some reason, they have this mindset that we need to, to make this happen. We need to force the issue. I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, don't you see this all the time? I see it all the time. Why did you do that? What made you, what made you think that that was a good decision? I, I don't know. We were all there, and everyone was doing it, and we were doing this, and we were doing that, and so we did it. Young people, you need to listen to this. Situations and circumstances do not change the morality and the instruction and the integrity of God's Word. You don't make your decision based on the circumstance. You make your decision based on what is right according to God's Word. And these girls just mess things up with this, circumstance, this situation ethic. Based on where we are right now, then my behavior is justifiable. That'll get you into all kinds of problems. Especially if you're away from home and living in a college dorm. Mark my words. Life is unglued by major crisis. Life is guided by situation ethics. Boy, there's something pretty obvious in this passage then. Look what happens next. Verse 32. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie down with him and preserve our family through him. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and lay with him and he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. I guess it's to Lot's credit that the passage at least records for us that he had an, a lack of awareness of the details of what's going on. He was in a sense being manipulated. Now, I suspect that at this point, Lot is not a real sharp cookie. I suspect that Lot is as low as a man can get. He doesn't say to his daughters, let's build an altar and let's worship the Lord. 
That's what Noah did to his family. That's what Abraham has done to his family. Come, let's worship the living God. Let's look to him for our provision. I suspect that Lot wakes up in the morning in this damp, dark cave. That's how I picture it. He's stiff. He's uncomfortable. He didn't have enough blankets. He's trying to get some little dry grass and bark together to get a little fire going from last night's fire embers, cook fire. He's trying to get warm. He doesn't have any coffee. He's depressed. He's discouraged. He's downcast. And his daughters say after supper, here, Dad, drink a little bit of this. And so he drinks it. <sighs> drink a little more, Dad. And I can understand him doing it once, but then the very next night they say, Dad, here, drink a little wine. Here, Dad. And they use the abuse of alcohol to create an inroad into an inappropriate relationship. Boy, does that sound familiar? You know, I think it is astounding the number of crimes, the abuses, the, the spousal abuse, the children abuse, the divorce factor, the criminal factor, where drug abuse and alcohol abuse is present. There is almost no crime that goes on where the people haven't been drinking or using drugs. Do you know that? It's unbelievable. Third dynamic, the third common thread that you're going to find in, in imploding dysfunctional lives is that life is often impaired by alcohol abuse. There it is. Alcohol plays a key role in this story. You know, they say that one in seven people one in seven people who put alcohol to their mouth will have their life permanently and negatively impaired by alcohol in some way. In fact, let's do this. How many of you in your family circle, let's say aunts, uncles, first cousins, grandpa and grandma, nieces and nephews, that kind of a family circle, a pretty close family circle, how many of you would raise your hand right now and say our family has been negatively, even permanently impacted by alcohol or drug abuse? Raise your hand. Look at that. Hands everywhere. And I want to ask you a question, and some of you aren't going to like this. Why is it that right now the Christian community defends the right to drink alcohol? I really have a problem with that. I do not understand when almost no good comes out of alcohol, and some of you have had your families majorly impacted in a negative way through alcohol abuse, that it is now the, the, the strong Christian thing to do to be able to drink alcohol. I, I really don't understand that. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes on our, on our principles of spiritual principles that are violated. We see these common threads, don't we? We see where the major crises have hit and it seems to be no blessing on the home. We see that there's a situation, a situation ethics that is guiding the family decision making. Here we are, let's just do this. We see alcohol highly impacting in a negative way this family unit. I want you to see again, and young people that are here present, please pay close attention. This is a big one for you. But it's present in the, the lives of adults as well. I want you to see that the common thread or the common characteristic of a dysfunctional life or family, number four, is that life is misguided by foolish counsel. Life is misguided by foolish counsel. Almost everyone I've ever talked to whose life is falling apart, they are listening to somebody who has no business giving advice. And they're doing what they say. 
Well, because they're confused. They're lost. They don't know what to do. And so the, the voices in their world are coming at them and they're listening to the wrong people. Look what happens in the story. That night, verse 33, they got their father to drink wine. The older daughter went in and lay down. He was, not, she, he was not aware. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night, I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so that you go in and you go in and lie with him so that we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went in and lay with him. This is, this is just the old, I did it, now you go do it. You know what you have to say? Listen. Just because everybody's doing it does not mean you have to do it. We don't make our decisions based on what everybody's doing. Just because somebody's older and supposedly wiser doesn't mean you have to do what they say. You've got to think, young people. You've got to use your brain that God gave you and you've got to say what is right and what is wrong. What is a right decision in this context? How do I respond to this information? And the older sister has a power on the younger sister. Okay, now I did it. Now you go do it. And the younger sister say, no, no. I'm not doing this. Okay. Listening to bad counsel. Listening to bad advice. You know what your mom would say right now? If they go and jump off the garage roof, are you going to go jump off the garage roof? your mom's right. She's lived long enough to know that jumping off garage roofs gets old in a hurry. The fifth common theme, the fifth thread that you're going to find in dysfunctional families and sin-eaten lives is also very evident in this passage. Verses 33 through 36 have described the rather gross scenario of this incestual relationship I've titled number five, that life is scarred by sexual immorality. Life is scarred by sexual immorality. You might say, well, I wouldn't do what they did. No, that's true. Most people wouldn't in our culture. But I'll tell you something. You will be hard-pressed to find a family that's coming unglued. You will be hard-pressed to find someone who is destroying their life where sexual immorality is not prevalent where there's not ongoing sexual immorality. It all goes together. It's also amazing to me how alcohol and sexual immorality fit together as well. It's there. Don't defend it. Look at it the way God looks at it. Don't make excuse for it. It has no place in the life of a Christian's family and do you know that you will see Lot in heaven? He was, in essence, a Christian. Peter says he was a righteous man. He will be in heaven. I don't think his wife will be there, and I don't think his daughters will be there. What business does a Christian father have looking the other way when this nonsense is going on? There it is. The meltdown caused by sin the devastation of this sinful dysfunction. Interesting how the story ends. Verse 36, So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. We won't take the time to do it now, but do you know that 
that in Deuteronomy, again in the Kings, in our Old Testament, it's going to record for us time and again where these two people groups create nothing but problems for God's people Israel. You remember we've talked different times about the gods of Molech, the Baals and the gods of Molech. Do you know where those worshipers came from? Right out of these two people groups. They were a horrible and horrendous people. They caused much grief. Balaam and his story is about, involves them. It is interesting to note, though, you ever heard of a precious Moabite woman named Ruth? And how God used her to preserve the line through her. She was a great-grandmother to David and who was a great-great-great-great-grandfather to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, isn't it, how all this weaves together. But what I see in this dysfunctional family that is caving in is that finally, number six, the sixth thread, the sixth dynamic that you're going to see, and you'll see it over and over and over again, is that life is wasted and it ends in regret. Do you know that this is the end of Lot's story in the Old Testament? We will hear no more about Lot. That's it. It's over. It's over. I don't know how he lived. I don't know what he did. You know, I wonder if he took one of the, uh, the grandson Moab and the grandson Ammon and he put them on his knee and said, Boys, let me tell you about my life. Here, boys, let granddaddy tell you some stories about how I've lived. Here, boys. I, I don't know. I wonder if you could find that cave if scratched into the side of the wall is a picture that kind of looks like that and Lot wrote underneath it, a portrait of my family and life. You will never hear of him again. It's over. He wasted his life. Oh, he was a fat cat, don't get me wrong. He sat at the gates of Sodom. He had a big, nice house. He lived where living was great. It was high time. But it just came unglued. And then I think he spent his old age scratching his head saying, how in the world did I get here? I'll tell you how you got there a lot. I'll tell you how you raised your family like that. You ignored the spiritual principles of God's way. How can you have God's blessing if you don't live God's way? Listen, if you run a stop sign and have a wreck, don't walk around saying, man, I don't know why that happened. I thought I could get through that stop sign. And people do that all the time. They're involved in drunkenness. They're involved in immorality. They're involved in major crisis. They make horrible financial decisions. They violate principle after principle after principle of God's word. And then they wonder how come they had a wreck. You can't cross the yellow line. You can't run the stop signs or you're going to have a wreck. And if it's as simple as that when you're out there driving a car, it's that much more important when you're living your life. You know you only get to live one time. Do you know that? Why would you run spiritual stop signs and think, hey, that's cool, I did fine. Young people, listen to me. You think when you're 19, you can do whatever you want. You can't. You can't violate God's laws and get away with it. It'll rip you up. You're going to be putting your family portrait together someday. Ain't it pretty? You can get it framed and matted. But it's still a mess. You don't have to say... And the tears are coming down. I say, you know what? Bad news is, is I can't fix what's going on. It's over. It's over. 
The good news is that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can have a new beginning starting right now. You don't have to keep living like this. You don't have to keep doing stupid things. Stupid decisions get stupid results. Choices have consequence. Lot is living proof. Well, Sapolsky knew I wasn't going to get through my final six points on time. I saw you roll your eyes, Jim, when you knew I had 12 points. Well, there's six, six common threads in a dysfunctional life. Can I quickly rattle off just a minute or two apiece the six principles that were violated that correlate with each one? Can I do that quickly for you? Will you be patient with me? If you have to, you can get up and go. Six wisdom principles that Lot and his children violated. I'm going to go quickly, and I want you to turn in your Bible quickly, so let's just rattle them off. The first principle is the spiritual principle of the harvest. Galatians chapter 6. Will you look there with me quickly? Galatians chapter 6. The, the principle of the harvest. This is the law of sowing and reaping. The spiritual law of sowing and reaping. This is Galatians in your New Testament chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, begin with verse 7. Look what it says. Okay, this correlates with point number one of dysfunction. Dysfunctional family point number one was life is unglued by major crisis. Look what it says. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from that Spirit will reap eternal life. Do not become weary of doing good. Listen, the principle of the harvest is that there are consequences of what you plant in your life. All right? And so if you sow to the flesh, if you sow to the sinful nature... If you cast out seed of sinfulness, then you're going to reap a harvest of destruction in your home and in your family and in your life. It's undeniable. It's irrefutable. You can't do anything about it. Throw out the seeds of destruction, reap a harvest of destruction. That's what's going to happen. There it is. Do you know how Lot's life ended up with this portrait? Do you know how Lot, who lived as a wealthy man, ended up his life in a cave with an incestual relationship with his daughters? Because he was reaping what he sowed. He had every opportunity to follow Uncle Abraham. He had every opportunity to say, Uncle Abraham, my life has fallen apart. Can I just come in and you mentor me? Will you teach me how to be the man you are? And I don't know. Instead, he's living in a cave trying to figure out how to light a fire and get some oatmeal put together for supper. You will reap what you sow. Mark it down. It's chiseled in the side of Lot's cave. Number two is the principle of long-term blessing. The principle of long-term blessing. We won't turn there, but Psalm 37, 7a says this. Be still and wait upon the Lord. Young people, I don't know how many people I've dealt with in my ministry career of 25 years who this principle is the one they violated that really got them. They got tired of waiting for God to make His way clear. And they took measures in their own hands based upon the circumstances of their lives. But Pastor Van, you don't understand. I'm all alone up here and I didn't have anybody to be with, so I did this. It's, it's the principle of long-term blessing. Listen, you cannot 
sacrifice the future blessing of God for short-term pleasure and get away with it. It's not going to happen. And so our decisions matter. You cannot live a situationally ethical life. You must live according to the principles of God's Word. Psalm 84, 11 and 12 is another one you can write down if you're taking notes. The Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord God will give grace and glory, and no good thing will He withhold from Him whose walk is upright. Do you believe that? Well, you don't understand. God's not paying attention to me right now. <laughs> not true. Not true. You test Him. You try Him. You wait on Him. The principle of the harvest. The principle of long-term blessing. Number three, the principle of negative returns. Proverbs chapter 23. Will you turn there quickly? Proverbs chapter 23. Look what it says right here. This is just unbelievable. It's perfect for Lot's life. The principle of negative returns. This one was, life is impaired by alcohol in these dysfunctional homes. Look what, the, look what Proverbs writes. Solomon writes in Proverbs 23, 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and it poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on, on the high seas lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I am not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? I see Tim's in our audience this morning, and Bill Snyder's been on the police force in L.A. I bet I could get these guys up here, and they could start talking now and talk till next Sunday morning on all of their experiences in the prosecutor's office, in the police department, on how much alcohol is involved in the destruction of lives and people's stupid behavior. But you all know that already. I don't have to illustrate that, do I? And that's one of the reasons why it is mind-boggling to me that Christians defend the use of alcohol. It is a dangerous thing. It's a slippery slope. There's no good thing that comes. Say, you don't understand. It calms my nerves. All right, there may be some medicinal value. And you say, well, Paul told Timothy to drink wine for his stomach's sake. That's true. That wine had alcohol in it, Pastor Van. I probably agree with that. I agree with that. But I'll bet you your stomach would pop wide open before you could drink enough of that kind of wine to get drunk. Look what it says here. It says, when it sparkles, when it's pretty to look at, it's sparkling in the cup and it goes down smoothly. This is the kind of drink that's always advertised on our television. This is the kind of drink that everybody loves to drink. This is what goes... Don't tell me. I didn't fall off the wagon yesterday. I've swept up glass in people's kitchens more than once in the middle of the night because the drunken fool busted the place up. And I said, man, I can't wait to start drinking. Maybe I'm one of the one in seven. That'd be great. I remember the little girl that came in my office. I've told you about her before, attending Shepherd University. She had pretty nice white even teeth. And she told me a story how she got her pretty nice white teeth. She was at a party. Stone drunk, stumbled down the front steps and knocked out all of her top teeth on the, stone, on the cement planter at the bottom of the steps. So she had nice teeth put back in her mouth. Didn't even know it until she woke up the next morning. Couldn't remember how she lost her front teeth. Does that remind you of Lot? It's like, man, there's a party to go to. 
That sounds like living to me. You say, oh, Pastor Van, you're really over-exaggerating. You're overextending. Now listen, I don't see in our culture any benefit of drinking alcohol in the Christian home. I see no benefit. I see no benefit of telling our young people in the youth group, you can drink alcohol. There's no problem there. I say you're out of your ever-loving mind. You're setting up the next generation to just flush down the drain. It's dangerous. It's foolish. I know what you do in the privacy of your home is between you and the Lord. But I'm telling you as your pastor, I'm cautioning you. You're probably on more dangerous thin ice than what you think. And young people, I challenge you to never start. Never put it to your mouth. Never put it to your mouth. There is nothing cool about it. It really just smells bad. I don't have many feelings about that one, but... um... The principle of the harvest, the principle of long-term blessing, the principle of negative returns. The principle of negative returns is that if nothing good comes of it, why would you invest in it? That's what I meant by that one on alcohol. There's nothing that good comes up from it, so why would you invest in it? If you lost money every time you put the money in the slot machine, you ought to stop playing. Oh, now I got on another topic. Just go vote no Saturday and I'll save you the message. I'll email you one this week. It's the principle of negative returns. Don't keep doing it if nothing good comes from it. The principle of the jumping flea is number four. That one is life is misguided by foolish counsel. We've got to wrap up, but let me just crank these out. Remember the older sister influencing the younger sister? This is the principle of the jumping flea. What in the world is that? I learned this from uh, my brother-in-law, Howard Merrill, who is one of the wise counselors that I've built into my life. Do you have wise counselors in your life? Do you have people that you can go to and say, hey, I'm, I'm in, in a cave, man. My life's calling, coming apart. Would you please guide me? I don't have enough sense to make wise decisions. You have to have people in your life like that. That's one reason why you ought to be connected well with the church. My brother-in-law says, and I don't think he made it up. It's an old country proverb. If you sleep with hound dogs, you're going to get ticks. If you sleep with hound dogs, you're going to get ticks. Fleas. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. You don't have to turn there, write it down. It says this, bad company corrupts good morals. How many times do I have people in my office? How many times have I encountered young people through the years in youth ministry? Why did you do that? Well, they said to. Who are they? And why would you listen to them? And what about their life is something you want to emulate? And what about their decision-making has proven that they know what they're doing? I don't know, Pastor Van. They just said it, so we did it. Hey, listen. You've got to learn to do your own thinking. And you've got you've to say, what would God think right now? What does God's Word say? If you hang around these people, you're going to have fleas. You're going to make their kind of decisions. Fifthly, the principle of self-control. This is on sexual moral purity. The, the reference is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. It is God's will that you be sanctified and that you learn to control your body, not in passionate lust like the heathen. Listen. If you belong to God, He expects you to control your body. You don't compromise because of any circumstances. That's what Lot and his daughters did. The principle of self-control. 
Life is scarred by sexual immorality. You have to have self-control. Number six, it's the treasure principle or the principle of the heart. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You want to know why this is the portrait of Lot and his family? Do you want to know why this is matted and framed and on the side of that cave wall? Because of where Lot's heart was. His heart followed his treasure. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And Lot followed materialism. Lot followed ease and comfort and feeding the flesh. Lot made excuses for his family. He made excuses for his lifestyle. There's his picture right there. There it is. There it is. Listen, I'm not saying that when you live for Jesus that it's easier and that you don't have problems and that you can't have disappointing things happen in your world. But I'm telling you, you can't just paddle your canoe down the river of dysfunction and then say, I wonder how I got here. You've got to live according to these spiritual principles of God's word. They work. They work. It's real. Mark it down, young people especially. Mark it down. You're not as safe as you think when you leave the corral of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the practical advice here today. Lord, what a tragedy and what a shame for Lot and his family to just end in, in waste. His treasure and his heart ended up in places that turned to rust, that melted away. And there was nothing to show for his entire life. Father, would you please preserve our young people, preserve our families, preserve us as adults from wrong-headed thinking, from fleshly decision-making, from listening to the wrong voices, from alcohol and drug abuse, from sexual immorality, And may we see the blessing of your good hand. Father, I pray that we would surrender our hearts to you and live carefully before you this week. In Jesus' name.